Okay, salamu alaikum everybody. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to another amazing Saturday session. Um, I think our plan is to actually cover a couple of short surahs. We're going to do Surah 93 al-Doha and then Surah 94 al-Shar. Um, and then inshallah, um, Sheikh is hopeful. He's optimistic that we'll have time to do Q&A so we could possibly do Q&A for Surah Tauba and the two surahs we do today. Um, I just made the comment that that's very uh, much like the three minute breaks that we normally take. <laughs> so we'll see if we actually have time. Um, but inshallah, inshallah, we will get to it all. Uh, if not all tonight, then we will continue um, for next next week, inshallah. Um, but I'm so excited because every time we do one of these short surahs, they're, they're so powerful. And these two surahs are actually ones that we've done previously, um, obviously in line by line format um, back in, Back in the day when we were still in LA um, and doing halakas, uh, you know, at the other Asuli location. So if you want to go back and you can find those obviously on our, our YouTube channel under the line by line traditional halakha approach. Um, so I wanted, of course, to start out. I'm wearing orange um, too because in honor of our, our dear friend Witski, who's here. She's from the Netherlands, and so you know we have to be good sports here in the U.S. So we got trounced today, from what I understand. <laughs> People here that are like, why do we have to be good sports? Um, but yeah, so orange is the Netherlands color. So you know, in honor of Witski, and also. Um, you know, I'm always really grateful when Whiskey's here because um, I don't have to do my uh, Adhan because her Adhan is like out of this world. It's like divine and amazing. So make sure you check it out. She did um, an African version yesterday, which is incredible. And um, I'm going to have to get more of the detail, but it's like in pentatonic scale, which means that the distance between the notes is equal. And one of the things that she said that's so beautiful is that but that to her is like, you know, truly the embodiment of equality. Like, you know, when you do notes in a, in a scale where there are different uh, distances between the notes, um, you know, it's like minor scale. I'm not a music person, so I can't really, I don't know if I'm articulating this correctly, but pentatonic scale means that it's like different notes, different, you know, same scale between them, equality between the notes. And, you know, that's a very beautiful idea, obviously, in terms of the Islamic, everything is equal and beautiful. And these are the types of adhans that still, um, that are really in African nations, right? And um, and so it's, again, like a very beautiful um, honoring of those traditions there that are, you know, really, we don't know much about and we should because they are our brothers and sisters. So anyway, very beautiful yesterday. And then a week ago from yesterday, she also did the adhan, which was amazing. So check those out. Um, and uh, yeah, so an orange in, in honor of the Netherlands and, and all of that. So um, as usual, I have to um, call out the incredible um, khutbah from yesterday. And the title is Judeo-Christian Values in Quotes and the Road to Moral Bankruptcy. And it was a really, really powerful talk, once again, as always, um, where Sheikh is talking about this concept of Judeo-Christian values and how, you know, we love to talk about, or there are lots of, you know, writers and historians and, you know, people who, you know, this conception that everything that has to do with sort of the elevated values of, of our times, human rights, you know, rule of law, all of that is actually founded in the quote-unquote Judeo, you know, Christian value system, um, which is not true if you actually have a proper education. Um, but how, you know, honestly, the hypocrisy of that is that rule of law and human rights is perfectly, you know, legit when it's a white man giving those rights and that due to another white man. But then when you compare, you know, from a colonialist perspective, 
what happens to the brown colored you know population and the other you know non-whites uh, those things don't really apply it's complicated you know all human rights and you know uh, rule of law is not really something that we can you know easily talk about and so the hypocrisy really is just um, stunning and really disturbing so it was a really really powerful um, talk and then again as always Sheikh brings us back to our Quranic foundations and the verses that talk about what happens when we forget about the Quran as our companion and the values that the Quran gives us and you know the the equality and the you know and human rights in general and, and you know and rule of law I mean truly as we especially have learned in these halakas and really enumerated um, that this you know when, when we as Muslims forget these beautiful Islamic values that are you know, founded in our Quran, and we don't fight or we don't stand up for what's right, we end up on the road to moral bankruptcy. So it's a really incredible khutbah. So please definitely check it out. Um, I am so excited. I don't want to take any more time because I really want to get through two more surahs and then possibly have a Q&A. So I just want to welcome everyone. Um, thank you so much for joining us. And inshallah, I'm looking forward to an, another, an amazing session as always, inshallah. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم سبحان الله العلي العظيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم على الحبيب المصطفى محمد النبي الرسول الأمين المرسل رحمة للعالمين خاتم الرسل والأنبياء أجمعين وعلى آله الأطهار الميامين وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب Um, okay, so as you know that the the only surah remaining that we have not uh, talked about at all is Surah Al-Ma'idah. And Surah Al-Ma'idah, the final surah in uh, the Medinian period, uh, of course, with the exception of Iza Ja'a Nasrullahi wal Fatah. But we'll, we'll get to that, inshallah. But it, um, I felt that instead of plunging into Surah Al-Ma'idah, we get, we take a bit of a breather. Um, Uh, because following Surah At-Tawbah, it is, it will be um, an intense engagement. And going back to the surah that, as Grace mentioned, that I covered in the, the traditional tafsir of line by line and covering all the different riwayat about each ayah and so on, and so this is going back to these sore, but talking about them in Project Ulum style, which um, uh, different emphasis and a little bit of a different take on the sore from the classical traditional uh, tradition. And There are reports, although I don't believe 
that they aren't necessarily reliable reports, but there are reports that uh, Surat Sharh is part is it, it, that there are minority reports that say that Surat al Duha and Surat al Sharh, Surat al Duha and the one that follows it, are part of are a single surah. And so in the Islamic tradition, there were some who would never read the one without the other. So they, 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 because they believed that, but if you look at each, each of these surahs structurally, you, you can tell that they're not the same surah, that uh, Surah Al-Duha has a conclusion and uh, the way that Surah Al-Sharh begins, um, it, it gives every indication that they're two separate surahs, although they are revealed one after the other with a message that is very close to one another. And that's probably what contributed to the narratives that said that there are a single surah. Um, okay, so first, the traditional narratives maintain that there was a considerable amount of, of variety first, that, that Surah Al-Duha is revealed after a some event or something happened whereupon the Prophet ﷺ is troubled by the discontinuation of al-wahy or discontinuation of revelation. Now, what is this event? Here you get an, a considerable diversity of reports. Um, um, that he received the Surah Al-Fajr, the revelation in Surah Al-Fajr, and and that this was the the eighth surah revealed to him in Mecca. So we're talking about early Mecca period. And that after Surah Al-Fajr, there one report that says that someone threw a rock at him and injured him and that the, the injury became in, infected. Um, and that uh, during that period that he was ill, uh, from that injury, he did not receive any rev any revelation, and that it was a period of few days. There is again, you get different reports about how many days. You know, two, three, a week, ten days, two weeks, whatever. Um, and that a um, a woman then tells him mockingly. Muhammad, I, I see that your demons have abandoned you. 
meaning that the demons who are revealing the Quran to you uh, have abandoned you. And that Surah Al-Duha and Surah Al-Sharh are both a response to this. Other reports just are more vague. They tell us that uh, after the revelation of Surah Al-Fajr, there remained a time, a period of time in which the Prophet ﷺ is not receiving any revelation to the point that he starts becoming troubled and saddened by it. Um, um, and even some reports go as far as saying that he became alarmed, uh, greatly alarmed at the discontinuation of revelation and then that Surah Al-Duha and Surah Al-Sharh are revealed in response to the Prophet's alarm. Um, uh, yet other reports from Ibn Jarih and, and others that tell us that um, after a, a, a um, after Surah Al-Fajr that he the the social mocking and targeting of the Prophet والسلام, uh, uh, escalated and that for a period of about two weeks he wasn't receiving any revelation and became very disturbed about this and then Surah Al-Duha is a response to, to all of that. There is, and and these are just only some of the reports. There are many. There there are a number of other reports that have the same. Um, that Aisha, for instance, reports that um, uh, uh, that he even because of the, 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 the period of interruption that the Prophet uh, you know, starts becoming troubled uh, if he's done something wrong, that God had abandoned him. Although these, these traditions are widely reported I have to tell you, I, I think they are quite problematic. Um, there is the, the, the notion that he is mocked by the Meccans and the Meccans would um, harass him by a, you know a, any period of time that he's not receiving revelation and telling him you know w w uh, what does your god say about this or what do your demons say about this or that's that's not surprising i mean that's precisely the type of persecution that you would expect from uh, the meccans 
But these reports, the we we run into problems in that all of them that talk about a you know two or three days or two weeks or at the most three weeks of receiving of not receiving revelation don't make sense you 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 are a prophet and you've received revelation of the power of al-fatiha and ahad and the power of the the first eight surahs to precede um al-duha and al-sharh and you become panicked because you have not received revelation for two or three weeks or a few days and we know that the early period of the da'wah the early period of preaching the islamic message that it was not done in open forums and that it was done discreetly and that we don't get to a period where the Meccans would actually notice that there is a period without revelation. So early on, even if the Prophet ﷺ did not receive revelation for two or three days or two or three weeks, the Meccans wouldn't notice. Um, it wouldn't be an issue. It wouldn't even be uh, something that is remarkable because Throughout the Meccan period, we know that throughout the Meccan period, the Prophet would go as long as six months at a time without receiving revelation. So all these reports that dramatically present an emotional crisis because of inqita' al-wahi, as they call it, because the, the, the revelation was not... The, um, uh, do not sit well with the... They, they do sit well with the nature of medieval narratives that the same the same people that reported about inqita' al-wahy and how this is supposed to cause a crisis in for the prophet are the same cast of characters that reported a very dramatic another sort of medieval trope of the prophet being so troubled by being chosen as a prophet that he thinks of committing suicide. And the same type of serious questions about the authenticity of these suicide narratives, that he goes to the top of the cliff and he thinks of throwing himself off the cliff and then the angel Gabriel appears to him and says, you know, no, don't throw yourself off the cliff. When you look into the... the the 
particulars of these reports, the same types of doubts, they make sense in the sense uh, in, in medieval style of narratives that often present things in highly dramatized fashion to constantly juxtapose um, intense feelings of victory and loss. This is very typical of medieval narratives. And part of the of the the the, the um, part of the classical type of medieval narrative is that for the heroic figure to go through periods of deep despair only to overcome that despair in a sort of very uh, dramatized, highly dramatized fashion. But really, you know, two days or three days or because of a rock thrown at him and he was injured for a couple of days or even two weeks without al-wahy would uh, cause the type of disruption that these narratives talk about. Um, it, not very likely. And, and what I what I find, you know, the, the um, so for instance, even like the Aisha report, in which she is supposed to narrate about events that she did not experience firsthand. So remember that by the, when, when the time that the Prophet is receiving revelation, early revelation, when he's still married to Khadija, Aisha is not in the picture. But or even if she's in the picture, she's in the picture as the daughter of Abu Bakr, who would not be privy to any direct information. And if, if this was something that the Prophet ﷺ narrated about the circumstances of a duha and a sharh, we would expect that it would be widely narrated rather than simply narrated to particular individuals um, who seem to be privy to this information without justification as to why they would be privy to this information. So it is not, in my opinion, likely that either of these or was in response to Inqata' al-Wahi or that revelation was not received for a period of time. And this keys into the very meaning of Bosor. So, first Surah Al-Duha, it starts with a Qasam. Al-Duha, 
and Doha in is the morning hours, but we're not going to do it line by line. So let's just take the, uh, the entire surah and then. Um, so Wadoha Walayli Ida Saja. So uh, by the morn or by the morning hours or by the daylight, that key period of daylight. And the night as it settles. God has not abandoned you. Now Kala Kalashi means to hate it or to have a dislike of something. So when you say, God has not abandoned you and God does not hate you or dislike you. And again, you have to pause and think, what would possibly happen that would make the Prophet even entertain the idea that Allah would um, uh, dislike him or hate him. I mean, that's a, that's sort of a, a, a strong word for the type of narratives that tells us that this was to address the prophet's fears. And keep in mind that these types of narratives, they, they, um, from not, not recently, but even from the very beginning of the Islamic message, these types of reports were often exploited by Islam's enemies to try to impeach the stability of the Prophet's character. And and you you can you can see why because if it's if if just because you're not receiving revelation for a short period of time you start suspecting that God has abandoned you and God has it actually dislikes you even beyond abandoned you um, but holds you in disfavor does that's not a very While again, it makes sense in terms of medieval narratives, but it it is not a very flattering picture of the prophet's stability. Okay, so So God has not abandoned you, and let's see how Muhammad Asa translates it. God has not forsaken you nor does God scorn you. So, yeah, very close to the, to the same idea, that qala means scorn, dislike, hate you. And the hereafter is better than the here now. And indeed, 
your sustainer will grant you favors until you will be pleased. And then the reminders of Allah's na'am, alam yajidka yatiman fa'awa, hasn't God found you an orphan, so and give you shelter. And in the traditional tafsir, this is, they tell you, this of course in reference to the Prophet being born after his father died and the Prophet being losing his mother um, uh, as a young child and then going to his grandfather and then losing his grandfather and then being, being raised by his uncle after that. Um, and God has found you lost in your way and guided you. And God has found you in need and taking care of you, give, give, made you, Muhammad Asad puts it as, given you sufficiency. Okay. So then, so the orphan, um, so do not oppress or distress the orphan. And and so that who comes to you seeking help, do not turn them away uh, unkindly or put affirmatively. Make if you turn a person that seeks help, turn a person that seeks help away, you you must do so kindly. And, um, and be in constant remembrance of your Lord's blessings and gifts. Okay, so I said that I have strong reasons to doubt the narratives that say that this is in response to inqata' al-wahi or a period of time that early on in which revelation is not received. The, the, the only serious period where we, we can talk about a significant inqata' in wahi or a significant period in which revelation is not received uh, doesn't happen till much later in the Mecca period. So, but there is a message here from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the Prophet But the message is phrased in a way that transcends the circumstance of the Prophet The tendency to read Surah Al-Duha and Surah Al-Sharh as basically messages directed to the Prophet, primarily to the Prophet, I think is an unfortunate tendency. And 
reflect, and this will then help us answer why the language of the surah itself. So take a step back and let's reread the surah from a different perspective. So Walduha, the emergence of the light, but the emergence of the light after what? After the night, darkness has settled. In every the human being's life, it is inevitable that all of us are tested by periods in which we perceive the night to have settled, darkness to have settled. And Allah, the nature of Iman is to constantly be anchored in the promise of the light even when darkness all around you has settled. We learn in later revelation that it is core to Iman that you believe in Allah's mercy. There is nothing that eats away at faith and eats away at your moral fiber like accepting the inevitability of darkness. In other words, if you truly lose the belief in the, in the possibility of the morning, in the possibility of the light, all you will see is the darkness. And the darkness doesn't allow you enlightenment. If you do not believe and you cannot see the promise of anything beyond the darkness, then from darkness to darkness you will go. Now, here is where the phrase makes sense. As you take in the darkness, do not allow yourself to interpret the prevalence of the darkness as God having abandoned you. Or that God, because remember, as we, we, we said in the past, in the, where the Quran was revealed, it was very common to think of deities as having created things that they eventually come to scorn 
And eventually, as the even in the, the Jewish tradition, which is very pronounced, for instance, in the Torah, that the the creator creates and then the creator is is so defied by the creator's creation, so the creator comes to scorn what the creator has created. So because of their defiance, God comes to and the Islamic theology came as a defying that whole idea that puts the creator at parallel with the created so that the the creator sort of becomes even petty entering into a competition with the created or the gods being defied or as in the Torah where God is, uh, you know, uh, where a human being wrestles God to the ground and ultimately defeats God in a wrestling match and so on. The biggest challenge in the settlement of darkness is to become confused as to God's commitment to the truth and to the light. Everything seems bleak around you. So where is God? Why doesn't God intervene? And once you accept that the belief that there is nothing possible beyond what you exist in, it put differently, whether you admit it to yourself or not, whether you confess it, you dare confess it to yourself or not, subconsciously your psyche will give in to you to the proposition that the devil has won or the inevitability of the demonic. There is nothing possible that, put differently, Ugliness is inevitable, and beauty is impossible. The, where, the withering away of the moral fiber of human beings, there, in every situation, will you find a human being tra- migrating from a set of moral ideals to compromising on these moral ideas or or betraying these moral ideas, what gets us from this point to that point is despair. Is that you get to a point where you, basically, you're telling yourself, I am being unreasonable in believing in purity or believing in beauty or believing in light. And whether we admit it to ourselves or not, it's precisely as the Quran puts it, that you either believe that God has abandoned you or even worse, that God has something beyond abandonment, 
that God scorns you. God actually has it out for you. That God is out to get you. Okay. The entire balance of Iman, though, and the entire... If, if you believe that this world is not just about your lifetime or even the lifetime of your children and that ultimately there is a hereafter where justice is vindicated, then the prevalence of injustice in your lived moments is not defeating. What breaks you and what defeats you is that you lose sight of what comes, what follows, what comes in the hereafter. And that's why, and the hereafter, that's why this is followed right away. The hereafter is better for you than the here now. Now, Alam Yajid Kaatiman Fa'awa. It is true that the Prophet was an orphan. But I think that Surah Al Duha is referring to a metaphysical reality that we are born alone in we are born alone in a alienated by the very act of birth in our world, where are we given quarter? Where we are given shelter is only through the grace of God. So the 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 put differently, you are born and you realize that now you are detached from what used to shelter you, your, your, your mother's womb. That moment of birth and all the psychology that goes with that moment of birth is a moment in which we are truly orphaned. In every moral sense, where we find spiritual shelter, spiritual, spiritual care, is through the grace of God. In the same way 
that we are born in need, physical need. And when we are given sufficiency, it's through the grace of God. We, we, we overlook this all the time because we take for granted the comfort that our mother gives us or the comfort that uh, relatives give us or the comfort that whatever, whatever we obtain a sense of shelter and security from. But this is all Allah's blessings and Allah's grace at work in the same way that the first pang of hunger that we feel, our mother might be feeding us, but our mother is nothing but an agent of the divine. So when Allah says, oh, and if I skipped, I skipped one verse that I've just noticed, that Allah has found you an orphan and found you in need and so provided for you and sheltered for you. Allah is reminding us of an undeniable reality of us coming into this world and an undeniable reality of Allah's presence with us through our existence in this world. It is only by forgetting Allah's constant grace and Allah's constant presence do we then allow that sense of the darkness settling and forgetting the presence of the divine and the promise of the divine in our lives. Notice I, I forgot or I skipped that God will, will, your sustainer will give you or God will give you until you will be pleased. The problem with Rida, with saying you will be pleased, is that it is a subjective thing. One person could be given a mountain of gold and not be pleased. And one person could be given but a handful of dates and they're pleased. So... When Allah says, Allah will give you so that you will be pleased, it is premised on pleased by what? Not by the actual physical material things given to you, but pleased by the very by the very process of Allah's giving. That Allah's presence, Allah's company, is what is sufficient for you. So, first, 
it's orienting you in this early on to the early on in the revelation the quranic revelation that listen allah knows that human beings are challenged often by impatience and despair the thing that breaks down the moral fiber of human beings is very often impatience and despair. They simply give up on believing in goodness or in the possibility of goodness. So, as you consider the darkness, understand what it means to believe in the promise of the light. And in order, to pre, pre, in order to believe in the promise of the light, you have to believe that God doesn't abandon you and that God doesn't scorn you. But these beliefs themselves are premised on your satisfaction with God. Billah, that if you that you understand what the value of God's accompaniment in your existence that that the company of God in itself is sufficient for you and God then reminds you that remember the the how you come to this world and that like every created thing that allah puts in creation you are given every blessing you have you have through allah's grace not through a sense of entitlement but in fact allah at the at the moment that you might be tempted to think that Allah is nowhere around. In fact, if you reflect, you'll find Allah's blessings testifying to Allah's constant presence with you. So, but all of this is meaningless unless it has material manifestations that attest to the truth of the thing. What are the material manifestations that attest to the fact that you do, in fact, value God's blessings? that you do in fact value God's company, that you do in fact understand what it means to believe in God and God's promise. Put it quite simply, it all translates into how you treat the weak. But see, this is the amazing thing. 
Why does darkness seem to settle in? Why does the demonic seem to prevail? Well, it does because people forget the importance of treating the weak, the orphan, the needy, humanely and kindly. That is how darkness comes. So, in fact, the darkness that has settled in, that has gives you despair, is of your own making. Because if you would have treated the orphan and the needy kindly, that darkness wouldn't have settled in in the first place. So, It is part and parcel, in fact, inseparable, that when Allah says, So, declare Allah's blessings. It's not just that remember Allah's blessings. It's declare Allah's blessings. It is inseparable from the humane and kind treatment of the needy and the powerless. Because that is indeed the promise of the light. Do you see? That is what duha, the promise of the light. When you search for the light and you can't find it, look to how do you treat the powerless, the orphan, and the needy. Because that will often tell you exactly why you can't find the light. So, this is Surah Al-Duha. We're doing good on time. So, before we take Surah al let's take two minutes. Two minutes, not a minute more. Bismillah uh, ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. You know, I'm always, I'm just always, uh, it, it is just, it, it, it never stops, uh, it never stops just haunting me the 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 how could people with a revelation like this go so astray um Yeah, and I and and anyway, okay. So I don't go off on a tangent, but so Surah Al-Sharh. So we already said that there is, you know, the minority view that says it's part of Surah Al-Duha, but I, there's 
most scholars had rejected that anyway, and, and I think that it, th there is not much to support this view. However, it it is likelihood, it is likely that Surah Al-Sharh was revealed either right after Surah Al-Duha or shortly after Surah Al-Duha, so we're talking about the early Meccan period. And again, the the tendency to, for, um, oral reports to tie the surah to the person of the to the person of the prophet ﷺ. so you know alam nashrah laka sadrak in sharah al-sadr haven't we it's you know um, have we not opened your heart um We'll say more about this, but the opening of the heart is a sign of ease and um, and and enlightenment and understanding. Um, that we removed your burden or we alleviated your burden or we lifted your burden. وَرَفَعْنَا لَكَ and we normally translated as we elevated your remembrance فَإِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرِ يُسْرَى إِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرَ يُسْرَى so with hardship there is ease فَإِذَا فَرَقْتَ فَانْصَبُ إِلَى رَبِّكَ فَرْغَبُ so when you are when you are freed of hardship uh, Recommit yourself to the remembrance of your Lord and seek out your Lord. And there are oral traditions that bring the surah to the particularity of the Prophet ﷺ in that, um, especially, that we have elevated your remembrance and they say well the, the way that Allah has elevated the prophet's remembrance is that every time Allah is remembered that the prophet is remembered but by saying you know that at the same time that you bear witness to uh, the oneness of God, you also bear witness <clears throat> to the prophecy of Muhammad. Um, and that is what is intended by or we have elevated your remembrance. And in fact, there is a, a tradition in which reportedly um, well, there is a version of it in which the 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 the, the communication comes from Gabriel. Uh, another version in which the Prophet ﷺ asks people, "Do you know what Warafana Lakadikrak means?" And they say, "We don't." And he says, "Well, every time God is remembered, or every time God is mentioned, my name is mentioned as well, and that's what elevated your uh, your remembrances." Yeah. <laughs>
and that's that's sort of I, I, you can say that that's the traditional classical um, understanding of the surah is that Allah is telling the Prophet that remember that when there is hardship Allah's ease comes with this hardship or follows this hardship and Allah is telling the, the Prophet that uh, you know I've I've guided you and whatever burden that weighed heavily upon you I removed that burden and some of the traditions that are very problematic and again in in my view should not be accepted that tell you oh the the prophet felt burdened by sins of the past and that Allah forgave these sins when the prophet became a prophet and that's what we and lifted your burden means now of course again not just in the modern age but from the very beginning of Islam that has been uh, you know steady father for the enemies of Islam is like well you know uh, look the Quran itself points to sins having been committed by the Prophet the problem is you search long and hard and there are no reliable reports that before becoming a prophet that Muhammad um, had committed any major or minor sins and in fact if you accept the report that his heart was cleansed as a child by an by angels the 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 reports about shak sadr rasul that is is they came and they opened his chest and cleaned that's in direct contradiction to the idea that there was a wisdom there was a sin that burdened the prophet that god forgave so And when you, when you, again, when you look into into the the genesis of these traditions, um, you are troubled by numerous inconsistencies as to how careless the wording is, and how careless the claims are about uh, that we elevated your or we removed your your burden or removed your 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 sin and I think that the meaning of the surah is far more straightforward and again it is not limited y- yes God is speaking to the prophet, but there's a class of surah in which God speaks to the to, to us in the same way that God speaks to us through speaking to the Israelites. That when Allah directs Allah's speech to the Israelites, but the lesson is for us. Similarly, here, 
God is speaking to us through the person of the Prophet And indeed what Allah tells the Prophet applies with equal force and equal relevance to all of us. So let's take a step back again and um, here Allah is speaking to those who have attained belief but like Surat al-Duha the challenge and the nature of finding enlightenment, finding the joy of belief and the relief of belief is the deterioration of belief and the withering away of belief when human being is confronted by layers of hardship and difficulty. And remember that these sore are revealed at the very beginning of the Islamic message in which we know in retrospect that those who will believe, who will feel the sweetness of belief when they first believe, when they first say the shahada, and rediscover the truth is that they will endure periods of time in which that belief must anchor them because if it doesn't, it will look like Again, the 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 the, the sort of uh, the thing that causes so much iman to wither away. Where is God, and why has darkness settled in? So Allah begins with this rhetorical question: Of haven't you felt in Sharah al-Sadr? Haven't you felt how your your chest eased? It's like saying, haven't you felt the liberation in your in your heart when you've reached Iman? Now, for people who've never felt a moment of Iman in their lives, it's not relevant to them. Anyone who's felt a moment of Iman at any point in their life. The challenge in so much lost Iman or so many compromised morals and ethics is that not just you drift away from that moment, but you find it very difficult to recapture that moment. To, to once again remember how that moment felt like. (ص 
Don't you remember how light you felt when that moment of Iman came? Don't you remember how it seemed like all your troubles, all your burdens, all what oppressed you had been lifted? Because that memory is what will become your salvation and your anchor when things get cloudy and when things get dark. You know, it's if you take human beings, you know, go up and down in, in their faith throughout their life. But if only human beings could capture these moments in which, you know, they shed tear because of their, their or they felt truly liberated, or Allah's go close closeness, or Allah's proximity. Okay. So, the burdens, what weighed you down, whatever made you feel confused in life, in that moment of Iman, that in Sharah al-Sadr, it all seemed like it had been lifted away and removed. Here, although classical and traditional commentators have always translated it or always interpreted as we've made you um, um, made you famous or, or like made people remember you. Again, it, it's unbecoming, unbecoming. Our Prophet doesn't care if he's famous in this world and, 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 and it is beneath him for us to understand things this way. Dhikr shakhs There are the dhikr that matters, and that is the dhikr in the realm that matters. That you have become at that moment, at that time, closer in, put it this way, remembered, exalted, dignified in the heavens. At that moment of your inshirah al-sadr, where your burdens seem lifted, you were, in fact, closer to the heavens. It, remember when I told you in the past that there are people who are famous on this earth, but are infamous in the heavens, and people who are famous in the heavens, and but have no fame on this earth. The, the fame that matters that that's the dhikr that it's talking about. That 
when at these moments, now, if you are mindful of that, what will anchor you is to remember that there is no hardship without Allah's mercy flowing through this hardship that it is not that you you believe that in Allah's justice that's your ultimate your the ultimate is is the belief in Allah's justice that Allah's justice that is achievable even in, if it's in the hereafter but being ever mindful of the fact that at the very time that things seem like the darkness has settled and things and you're enduring hardship if you truly see with perception you will see that Allah is with you Allah's mercy is with you throughout layers of this hardship and ultimately the yusr that Allah is speaking about here is Allah's mercy and Allah's justice So, and like Surah Al-Duha, how do we see, how do we see our way through the usr, through the hardship, to the yusr, to the ease? Look, فَإِذَا فَرَخْتَ فَانْصَبْ فَانْصَبْ is not just um nusub is not just that you endure nusub is to pay attention and to persevere and it's like, like I tell you, if you want to know the truth, meaning persevere and pay careful attention so that you will know the truth. Or if I, if I tell you, that if you want to succeed, persevere and pay careful attention. Don't become distracted. وَإِلَىٰ رَبِّكَ فَرْغَبْ Remain, maintain your gaze during the times of hardship towards longing for your Lord. 
seeking after your Lord. So again, how is it that at times of hardship, we lose sight of our faith? How is it that during the time of hardship, faith becomes undone? It is by losing focus and losing perseverance and steadfastness as to what? As to the real goal of our existence. And that is seeking after God. Your material conditions could be very difficult. But through these material conditions, you could be closer to God than ever. In fact, materially, you could be in your worst state, but you could be in your best state as to what is in your, what, what dwells in your heart and your chest and the extent to which you feel unburdened and liberated. It's like saying, it is not the material hardship, or rephrase that, material hardship can become your oppression only if you allow it to be, only if what, what, dwells in your heart and what makes you feel liberated and unburdened what makes you feel liberated and unburdened is indeed material sufficiency but that's that's not the condition that Allah wants you to be in you're you're seeking Allah is what should be the source of your lightheartedness, your feeling unburdened, your feeling liberated. So again, it is if you focus, recommit yourself to seeking after your Lord, then hardship will not be hardship without seeing the many ways that Allah's mercy and Allah's company manifests in this hardship. The way that you lose sight of that is by losing your focus on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it is Allah's warning. It's like saying, you know, hard times will come but whether hard times weaken your face, hard times could weaken your face or strengthen your face. Hard times could make you feel oppressed or indeed make you feel liberated. And it all depends on what your compass is. Whether your compass is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or your compass are other things. Both soar lay al-duha and al-sharh lay foundational building blocks 
to the very attitude, sort of like coming in and saying, listen, Allah understands the way you've been living, the way you've been raised, the, the way you evaluate what is good or bad. Well, this message requires an entire paradigm shift. And the paradigm shift means re-evaluating the way you see the light and darkness, the way that you define your relationship to good and bad, dark and light. This is, I, and, and this is precisely why I mean, these two sore entered the conscience of Muslims despite the hadith that tried to construct these sore as limited to the persona of the Prophet the impact of these two sore how many a Muslim by reciting Surah Al-Sharh in prayer had felt lighthearted how many a Muslim during a periods of hardship in life, you know, they recite Surah Al-Sharh in prayer and they feel better? Is because intuitively you know that Allah is speaking to you. And that Allah is not simply speaking to his prophet and it's all over and done with. That in fact Allah is speaking to you through the Surah. And that is it, alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. Okay, uh, Grace needs a, a short break so she can collect questions. Um, so is it a two-minute break or three minutes? <laughs> three minutes. Three-minute break. Okay, assalamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome back. So, you know, it's interesting that... Um, we, some of us were commenting that kind of as we have gone uh, deeper into the surahs, because now we've just completed 89 surahs on this journey, subhanAllah, um, that, you know, there's just such a depth of information that you almost, you really have fewer and fewer questions. So, um, and I, I noticed we, we really have gotten fewer and fewer questions. So I actually, so we don't really have that many, but my favorite part of this entire journey, which we actually didn't start doing until um, we started going deeper in, is to actually ask um, Sheikh about his personal engagement with each of the surahs, like what was happening um, at the time and what were sort of some of the hot questions and you know key um, obsessions or anything um, that led him to you know, arrive at where he arrived. And I think that you know these power these these short stories are just they continue to be incredibly amazing mind blowing powerful because as you point out about how you know modern muslims have really limited the the understanding and application when you say that oh this surah was really directed more as something personal to the prophet peace be upon him but that we understand you know when you recast it and you help us see it it becomes so clear it's like you know, when you understand that this is about when the darkness settles and remembering the promise of the light. I mean, that's something so beautiful and so profound and so personal to each person. And just hearing you say it is really, um, really amazing. Um, 
And let me share this. Can I share that comment that you just sent? Um, Brian, it's really beautiful. Um, oops. Someone just sent through a comment that I saw that looked really beautiful. It's like, um, okay, was this a question? So, all right, we'll, we'll do that as a question. Um, so I, I just, I want to um, just thank you and tell you it's such such a profound journey to to hear where you have arrived and it's such a gift because I think time and time again we recognize how much time effort blood sweat tears reflection um, investment it's just like a true scholar in really engaging this tradition in ways that you know mere mortals can never do um, and then to come and then present something to us that touches us goes right to the soul right to the heart and it like you feel like I always say, you know, the Quran comes alive for our time and our age. It's, it's so transformative. And we get so many messages about how people have found Suli, found these halakas, and it's really transformed, transformed their relationship with the Quran, saved their faith. Um, and it just, you know, the deeper we go in, it's just really powerful. I mean, it, it just changes everything about, um, about our, our engagement and, and ourselves as Muslims. So I just, you know, thank you so much for that. Maybe we can start, because um, Surah Talba was nine days of engagement, and mm. I don't know if you can tell us what you remember of your journey with it. Well, um, Surah Talba. Well, okay. The the well, one of the things that I've always I've always like, one of the things that you learn early on, very early on in the process, is that all the different um, um, Names for Surah Al Tawbah that you know that it was known as Al Mubathira, Al Fadiha, Al Mukhziya, and so on. And that's but that that's unusual. And all the names have to do with the core idea of uh, of a surah that if you translate all these names they would they would communicate a surah that troubled people to the core it it it, it sort of shook people uh, confronted people with themselves and in in um, a lot of the but at the same time you learn the, the sort of the 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 main thrust of what you learn about Surah Tawbah is that it is the 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 Surah uh, in in the sort of later per positions or later perspectives that it is a surah of warfare. But the thing is, is that it is it is it, 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 it just the more you reflect on Surah Tawbah, it is 
not about that at all. It is about, and it's constantly talking about nifaq and, and uh, hypocrisy, but it constantly forces you to reflect within, to sort of turn your gaze within. So that was the beginning of the, of, you know, of the journey with Surat al that um, clearly from all the different names that were proposed or that were, you know, said, like when you say that Surat al-Tawbah is known as al-Mudamdima, Mudamdima literally means the surah that shakes you to the core. So why were the early Muslims received the surah as a surah that shook them to the core. And then when, but it it was like in the presentation, it, it took a long time because there are so many reports, riwayat associated with Surah Tawbah, and especially as to the various historical events, you know, from um, the Fath Mecca to the um, 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 the Battle of Hunayn to the Ghazwa uh, Tabuk, and so you are sifting through all these reports in the context of Surah Tawbah, constantly commenting on these various historical events, but there is a clear thematic unity to Surah Tawbah. And it, it actually dawns on you very early on that, okay, now that you defeated Mecca, there are so many of you think that the hard days are over. Well, actually, the true battle now begins, and the true battle is within. And every time, you know, you, you, you first think, okay, this is the message, but then but you, you reserve judgment until you finish your research because you don't know if your initial conclusions are going to be, have to be revised or completely redefined as you are continuing your research. But in Surah Al-Tabah, the more the, the, the research kept confirming this again and again, that it, it is, and in fact, you know, there's a stunning thing, is the way that Surah Al-Tabah ends is consistent with the consistent message of the Quran that when all said and done, if people turn away, all you can do is to rely on your Lord. So, it, 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 you know, the whole idea that this is uh, a surah that, that abrogated any of the previous ayat, or it's, it just doesn't hold up to scrutiny at all. So, I mean, Surah Al-Tawbah was very uh, uh, intensive in terms of historical research. But time and time, it, as, as it 
as I, what is confirmed is nearly that, um, you know, whether it is the excuse of war or the, or what is even harder is the excuse of peace. Um, and when you're honest with yourself and as you research the, the sort of the, 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 the micro level dynamics of what the Quran des described as hypocritical behavior and so on, and then the, the, your, the, the, the honest truth that the Quran is that the, this is behavior that is very human and that overlaps with your own emotions, your own feelings, your own behavior that you're not talking about a class of that, you know, the, 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 the part that you sort of have to get rid of is that you, you are raised giving a very comical view of the hypocrites as if they were a cunning, discreet class of fallen people that, you know, are miles and miles away of what, who you are as a believer and to come to the realization that actually no, but for the grace of God, you could have been one of these hypocrites uh, because of lack of will. Um, or perhaps even the worst realizations is that maybe you are one of these hypocrites as you're you know, living through life it casts the entire surah in a very different light. And so Surah Tawbah kept me awake um, a lot of nights. I mean, there are, if you remember, there were, um, especially in the Thousand Talks period, there were like there were, I would be pacing uh, around the, the swimming pool in Thousand Talks for later, uh, you know, for hours until Fajr. It's because of Surah Tawbah. Uh, that that constant pacing is because of the the extent to which it troubled me and terrified me and um, and then you keep going back to to you know and because you want to understand why was what seems to be so obvious. about the historical research, why was it, and I can't, you can't fault the classical tradition because the classical tradition, it was pre-historiography. But, and this is a different topic, but I've constantly, time and time again, come to the conclusion that Muslims have not had an iota of independent thinking since colonialism. Once colonialism set in, Muslims, every way that Muslims interacted with their tradition has been purely in a reactive mode or in a derivative mode. They're either reacting to what they perceive to be Orientalist accusations or they are paraphrasing what they read in Orientalist sources. And so there has been no 
serious engagement with, uh, I mean, it, it, classical medieval people engaged in medieval terms. But you need a very specialized knowledge to understand what these medieval terms are. And you can't expect the average person to, to know what anything about how the medieval mindset was or the medieval system of thinking was. Um, and and that's that's um, that's sort of a a, a a very lonely place to be when when you when you re, you realize that even your relationship to the Quran has been robbed. You know maybe you know the Spaniards converted South America converted to Christianity. You know. Um, Converted the Philippines mostly to Christianity. Uh, the, the 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 French spread Christianity at many levels in in, in Africa. Uh, the the British spread Christianity in in India and 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 so on. And you know you're you're raised with the idea that colonialism wasn't able to convert Muslims. Um, that where colonialism failed to convert is in the Muslim world. And that's only very partially true. Uh, the, the, it, what colonialism did really succeed in doing is alienating Muslims from their tradition and alienating Muslims from being able to access their historical tradition in a dynamic, vibrant way to even ask the most obvious questions about their tradition. And I just remember that sort of Tawbah in particular just like was um, because of just how, how glaring the, the inconsistencies between modern understandings of Surah Tawbah and what you find in the classical tradition staring you right in the face. Yeah. So that's what I remember the most about Surah Tawbah. Do you remember how long your engagement was with Surah Tawbah? Well, it, it must have been very long because it, it, <clears throat> it, it was it was during the period from all the way from Van Nuys to Thousand Oaks. So well, you're talking. Van Nuys was twenty years. <laughs> no, I mean from the last, the, towards the end of our time okay. in Van Nuys. Yeah. To a couple of years after, so I was on and off researching sort of the Toba. I, you know, because of uh, school, I couldn't steadily do it um, but yeah it was for a while so it seemed like it, it was it's, but it but the most intense part was um, um, like the last couple of months of it where you know I, I wanted to conclude my my research of sort of the do you remember where it was in the journey of all of the surahs? 
Um, towards the very end, I think the only surah I've researched after Tawbah was Al-Ma'idah. Mm. Yeah. So it was towards the very And I kept putting it off because I knew that Tawbah, uh, when every time I looked at the material that I would have to read through, it would seem daunting. So I kept putting it off um, until I was done with everything except Al-Ma'idah. Um, but I started in Ma'idah before finishing the Tawbah, which was very unusual for me. But that, that's, that's because of a dream that I had. Okay, we'll have to ask you about that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to save that one. How about Surah uh, Doha and Lashar? The, the, these, were very, uh, the, the, these were very early on in the process. And the thing about, I think like most Muslims, who you, you obtain a lot of emotional comfort from reciting al-duha and al-sharh. You know, any Muslim who's gone through a period of hardship knows that they, they, they get a sense of comfort when they recite al-duha and al-sharh. And that, that is like innate to your relationship to the Quran and intuitive. And, but if you came from a simply riwayat perspective, perspective of narrations, then that sense of relief would not make sense because you would just accept that this is a communication between God and the Prophet wasalam, that you're not invited to. But generations of Muslims would always feel invited to, so the question is, this is known innately and intuitively, what explains it? And, um, you know, the, the more you, you look, and especially when any riwayat, and this is something like, like Hassan Farhan al-Malki, um, that any riwayat that seem to cast the Prophet in an unfavorable light, in a weak light, uh, it is absolutely the case that you discover that the people involved in these riwayat took positions not supportive of Alil Bayt in the early Islamic conflicts. And like what Hassan Farhan al-Malki says in his, I mean, Hassan Farhan al-Malki sort of gave me the guts to to say what I found in the research because it's so obvious, it's, it just stares you in the face, is that there are these Muslims who were, had the misguided motivation of 
casting the prophet in in uh, in very human terms to impeach the special status of Ali al-Bayt. So, and uh, and then what then what becomes very clear is the 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 role of the Umayyads in in these reports, because they they not just uh, embrace these reports, they they punished those who did not accept them. They rewarded those who disseminated them. They were very aggressive in impeach, impeaching Al-Bayt through the humanizing, or for them, the humanizing of the Prophet. But it, it was in ways that were irrational. I mean, like, oh, he, you know, Al-Wahi didn't come, Revelation didn't come for... 12 days, so he freaked out and panicked. It doesn't make any sense with what we know about his personality and his character. And was even, I mean, these were people who were accustomed to a poet standing and delivering a, a profound poem and waiting a whole six months or a year before they're ready to deliver another poem in the marketplace. So in other words, the period of gestation for the birth of another mu'allaqa could be six months and a year. So the idea of, you know, that inspiration wouldn't be there for a period of time, it's not gonna, it wasn't shocking anyone. So, and then when you start investigating these not relying on what your teachers told you, because my teachers told me that these were reliable, unimpeachable reports. And Bani said that they're unimpeachable reports, but you go and you do the, the work yourself. And then you, then, and then you, and, and especially for instance, with Doha and, and Sharh, um, when you read about early Sufi characters in, in the fourth century Hijra, that they, they, would, they would compose poetry in, there, there's a, a famous, um, what was it? Um, I, the verses, uh, I'm not remembering them. But a first Sufi poem, which, basically understands it says to the in effect as per your instructions when I understood what Ruhub is what I understood what that word I discovered that it is nothing but love and that the true nature of this act of doesn't allow for anything to be in my heart but love. So look at the way that poem impacted. Now, when these are like little uh, insights as to how despite the these these traditions that constructed Surah al-Duha in a certain way, 
the actual impact iman-wise of Surah al-Duha. And so these then become pathways. And or when you reflect on um, uh, when you reflect on why when why would Allah say that expression and so I always thought is just a poetical um, uh, expression that it doesn't mean the settlement of the night but the flowing of the night that's what I always thought and then when you start researching and looking into the, the usage of the word in, in Arabic poetry and you discover that no Saja meaning flowing night was an actually a fairly recent development in Arabic poetry, like recent meaning the past four, three, four centuries. But the original main saja means to settle and to spread and to become give the 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 appearance of permanence that's like a hint so what does that mean why that word um, but that doha and sharh were very early on and there were among the sor that encouraged the journey of let me put aside as much of my colonial brainwashing. Let me try to deconstruct as much of my colonized mind as, as possible and revisit the Quran from the eye of a committed lover all over again. And when you, fir you first start out with the shorter sore, and when it bears fruit, and of course your prayers and on it and your journey with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you become encouraged. And and both of Duha and several other surahs inshallah that we'll talk about inshallah, like they, I say I received little love kiss message after them of continue on the path. You're, you're you're doing what you should do. Because of course, you know, you're a law professor and you, you, all of that is taking away from, you know, no, no one cares about what you do with the Quran. And I, and I never intended to share it anyway. So it's like, you know, why, why are you spending all this time doing this? And anyway. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> alhamdulillah. You yeah, alhamdulillah that you forced those, me to share it. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, that you received the love kisses and you, you, you listened and you continued on the journey because then we wouldn't be here receiving this amazing insight. But I, I mean, that's so beautiful and so powerful, just the idea of let me deconstruct my, my colonized mind because isn't that really the question on so many people's minds right now? How do we do that? How do we go about that? And to just start with the Quran again and reclaim history. You've said so many times throughout this whole journey, like what needs to happen. The, 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 I mean, you need to read a lot of history to have, if you want to decolonize your mind, yeah, 
read history, but don't don't read history to simply parrot the theory theories of historiography that you're told, but to think very analytically and critically about the theories of historiography. Who does he serve? Remember that you know the history of the world is largely told from a Western perspective. Uh, you know, even what the Middle East is the Middle East in relation to just that part of the world that colonized the world. The East is the East because, and the West is the West, and all in vis-a-vis -vis that. So you start from, let me re-understand the world that I've encountered where the West is not the West, and the East is not the East, and the Middle East is not the Middle East, and the Far East is not the Far East, uh, where, where Columbus didn't discover the Americas, where you, you know, it, where you just challenge. So I guess before that, you need to learn to think analytically, because There's a huge difference between thinking analytically and just griping and complaining. Because a lot of kids who are just constantly whining and complaining think they're being analytical. But there's a world of difference between analytical thought and obstructionist thought. Um, Alhamdulillah. Um, let's, I want to start with, um, with Brian's question um, on Doha. So that this is really important. For Surah Doha, for survivors of trauma, it is very easy for them to blame themselves for what happened. It is a form of darkness that can make one feel like they are worthy of God abandoning them. For those who are suffering from such shame, um, is service towards the weak a means of healing? When thinking about the Muslim community who is arguably carrying the intergenerational trauma of colonialism, how might this surah apply to Muslims in our current psychological state? I mean, of course, there, there, there is a part that I, I cannot speak to, and that is the, when, when it comes to the individual and, and, and you know, mental health, and, because it, um, but I, I can, I can just um, getting to, to, to. Okay, so first, is helping others a a way of contributing to seeing the light. Um, I can only testify that at the individual level, in my own experience, it is what has, what enables healing from so much trauma is um, to extend beyond yourself. I mean, it, 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 uh, it, it is the humility of 
seeing your own trauma in light of, you know, there is a saying in Arabic, um, um, whoever sees the afflictions of people will see their own affliction in its true light. Uh, it is, it goes back to this no notion of service. I mean, it, it is service that helps you heal, that helps you emerge out of your darkness. And, and I think that that ethic I, I've learned from the Quran. And, um, but there, there is another element of the, the, the question, though, that um, is very important. That is um, the, 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 the trauma that comes from colonized people. And, you know, the first thing, think of um, uh, the, the first thing that goes out of the door where if, if, uh, when you deal with a traumatized um, a traumatized brutalized people is a sense of solidarity and a sense of a, a, the, the bond of solidarity and bond of trust amongst themselves. This is in, I used to, one of the things that, you know, um, uh, um, troubled me. I wanted to understand how a fairly limited uh, French force that landed in Egypt with their ships largely destroyed by the British managed to defeat a, and, and the casualty list, I mean, the, the, the French in the, in, their, in the battle per which they occupied Egypt, uh, the, the list of casualties, the, what the Egyptians lost as opposed to what the French lost is, is shockingly. And that same pattern where you have the, a, a small, relatively small force land in foreign lands and be able to rout the native inhabitants in battle after battle after battle. And when you look at the, the you read the, the micro history of the way that the French force reacted or acted as opposed to the, the, those that stood in battle against them, the, the, inhabit, the inhabitants of Egypt. The, the French had a, a clear sense of solidarity and a common purpose and absolute confidence in their leadership and in one another. So even when they fought their battles, they fought, they, they maintained their ranks in, in squares. Sort of reminds you of the, the way that the Romans organized their force. And 
regardless of how overwhelming the numbers against them, they did not break ranks and did not lose the discipline and the confidence in their leadership. So if they would have lost their nerves, they would have broke the ranks, and they, if they would have broke the ranks, they would have been defeated by the overwhelming, much overwhelmingly larger Egyptian forces that confronted them. And their victories didn't stop there. Their victories continued from Egypt all the way, you know, marching into Gaza, coming very close to Jerusalem in battle after battle, where even when they were marching in the desert, dying from thirst, they still... Uh, and when you look at the, the, the technology, between the, 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 the technology gap between the two opposing forces, it, it really... It wasn't so vast that it would explain the results on the ground that you find. What you consistently find is a people that had the, 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 the difference is a people who believed in themselves and believed in one another, that sense of solidarity and trust in one another and in their leadership is what often enabled the colonizer to win victory after victory after victory. What happens to the colonized is they're no longer sure of the most basic values, including the value of fidelity and trust in one another, or in the basic idea that don't try to cut a part of the cake for yourself and run away with it, because ultimately the, the, the results for the collectivity will be disastrous. Same thing when um, in um, uh, in the in um, the way that uh, Zionist settlers were able to uh, overrun Palestine, sure, they were armed. They they were better armed by the British. Sure, they were received help from Europe that were over able to overwhelm native Palestinian forces. But time, time and time again, you find that Palestinian forces, when there were several moments where there was time for solidarity and unit, unity of purpose and a, a refocus from even the idea of Let's try to rely on the foreigner to obtain weapons, to manufacturing weapons ourselves locally. They failed to do so, and they failed to do so because of this traumatized psyche that had, you know, worried about the most immediate uh, interests of the village or the most immediate interests of the locality. 
rather than a collective purpose and a collective cause. It, so in other words, it is really true. When, when I would hear and what I used to read when I was very, you know, when people would say the, 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 the thing much worse than the military defeat is the cultural defeat and the psychological defeat, it is absolutely true. But how did we get there? I think that the fabric of society became undone because of the lack of social solidarity between the various strata and classes of society. The way, that the reason that the colonizer is able to divide and rule is because those who had the means no longer cared about those who didn't have the means. In other words, you were internally defeated before you were externally defeated. So it is absolutely true that there is no way to heal the historical trauma without recommitting yourself and re-believing in the commonwealth, even that expression. You know, what, what, what was the enlightenment, so-called, you know, the enlightenment of, of Europe all about? Uh, the, 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 the French, you know, come up with fraternity, uh, liberty, you know, you know, the ideals of the French Revolution that were all one. And the countries of the commonwealth believed in that we have a commonwealth. We have a, not commonwealth meaning common riches, but common weal, a common good. We are all one. Well, it's very easy to say, well, Islam had that in troves from the very beginning. You know, what was the, uh, the entire Islamic message about you are a single ummah, you are one ummah that, you know, enjoys the good, and etc., etc. But the truth of the matter is it had become meaningless by the time Muslims are colonized. It had been emptied all of its meaning. We no longer became a people with a common sense of purpose and a common sense of interest. The, we, we've became, we've re, retreated back to being a tribal, ethnic, petty, class-based, race-based, ethnic-based, you know, every based strata you can imagine had crept back in. And <clears throat> all the colonizer did was exploit these divisions. So it doesn't take a genius I'll, I'll, I'll say this and, and, and stop, um, um, but you know, it's a question that opens up. One of the things that I've learned very early on in my 
in my journey as a graduate student is that I found so many Israeli students and pro-Israeli students obsessing around the concept of the Muslim Ummah. And all the work that they did, all the PhD dissertations, all the lectures, everything that, that in these circles I've encountered was focused on deconstructing the idea of the Muslim Ummah, on saying, what does a Muslim Ummah mean anyway? It's a vacuous concept. It's an empty concept. It never meant anything. And by the time I finished my graduate studies, I have to admit, I had, I had bought into that. That the, that the Muslim idea of the Muslim Ummah never meant anything. It's a completely empty concept. It had never had any historical validity. When I revisited history from a decolonized perspective, I realized that I had gone through a brainwashing that at the same time that the Europeans discovered a concept of an ummah, that at the same time that political Zionism reinvented the concept of a Jewish ummah, that at the same time that Hindu nationalists rediscovered a concept of a Hindu ummah that never existed, but they've literally invented, the only people who were divested of an idea of an ummah were Muslims. And when you realize this, that everyone have gone from, traveled from the nation state and the irrationalism of the nation state to a journey towards the rediscovery of an ummah of one sort or another, except Muslims who it took the diligence of think tanks and academic institutions and, you know, thousands upon thousands of Muslims going to the West to get their doctorates to be taught that there was never really a Muslim ummah. Not in the past, not, in, not now, not ever, never will be. And they all bought it. They all bought it to the point that no Muslim today truly believes in the idea of an ummah anymore. Even if they go on saying brother, sister, as, as much as they want. They don't really believe in an ummah anymore. How did we get to the point where if, if an Egyptian says uh, Islamicity, they're immediately accused of being unpatriotic. Oh, you don't believe in the Egyptian nation? How did we get there? How could it be that the entire world discovered that, that, that the nation state is not viable economically or politically, that standing alone, you have no prayer in this world. Unless you are part of a collectivity, you are at a military disadvantage, 
You are at an economic disadvantage. You are at a commercial disadvantage. You are at every disadvantage. So the entire world realized that as long as you're a nation state, you're in deep trouble and you better form an ummah, except Muslims. It is, it's, I mean, and the sad thing is that I once thought maybe converts will come liberated from that, but, but converts became infected with the colonized mind of native Muslims. Native Muslims who suffer a colonized mind transmitted their colonized mentality to converts. So converts that come into the face don't know what an ummah is either. While I would submit to you, Islamic history in truth is the biggest testament to the viability of the idea of an ummah. Because it is not Arabs that repelled the Crusades repeatedly. Islam, as a solely Arab religion, it's a dead religion. Islam, without its Persians, without its Turks, without its Kurds, without every ethnic group that played a role in what defined Islamicity in history, because Arab alone is not viable. It hasn't been viable since, well, actually, it's never been viable. So, you know, if, 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 you, if your idea of Islam is an Arab alone, you might as well forget it. It's going nowhere. Then, you know. Alhamdulillah, I think these types of... Can I borrow your drink for a second? Oh, of course. Um, I mean, these types of, like, um, you know, I don't know what you call these, but when you when you go off on a tangent, actually, I think it's amazing. And this is like when we really learn, you know, because as I, as I listen to you, I get really angry about, you know, our situation and our state. And because, you know, we're all exposed to, you know, people like, okay, what do we do? How do we fix this? How, what's our problem? You know, how do we get here? Why do we not know this, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's important to just even hear your perspective because, you know, you've, you've seen so much and you've seen so much change and you've done so much of your own scholarship and your own research. Um, you know, and when people are thinking about, okay, well, wh what do we do to, de you know, colonize ourselves? Um, these are really important seeds of ideas that people at least can pursue and maybe they would not have arrived at those ideas for quite some time so when when you're able to share these like nuggets you could you know you know presumably you could advance people on their journey of figuring out how to put together because it's obvious that this is going to take a very long time like when you think about why is it that we as an ummah we don't trust one another you know we I talked about in, in the last um, halakha on surat alba you know, the notion of how can you build an ummah when, when you backstab your brother and you don't, you don't trust one another and, you know, you've forgotten your, the values that the Quran taught you. Well, okay, how long is it going to take for all of the Muslim world to, to learn these lessons? And we discover that, you know, they had the concept of the ummah first and everyone else took it and now they don't believe in it. I mean, it's, you know, it's like this is things that will take a very long time. But 
they're so valuable because otherwise I don't think most people are in a position to put all of the different disparate parts together and really share something of value. So thank you. And don't, you know how we always tell you don't rush, but I also think don't hold censor hold yourself either. <laughs> don't hold back. <laughs> it's like find that, that Nizan. Um, I, I wanted to ask, um, something actually came up in the last uh, session on Talba that someone asked about. I made a comment that, and I realized that you told me this, is that um, every, you know, like Talba being about your internal jihad, that we should expect a test once or twice every year. Mm. And so somebody wanted me to ask that question for you to elaborate on, if you could talk about that. Well, of course, the this the reference is in Surah Tawbah that don't they see that they're tested once or twice every year. But this was a, a reference to the 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 in particularly intensified program that people at the time of the Prophet confronted. That they were. I mean, if you look at all the ups and downs in their in a, in a decade, it was very. Um, it, what what is transferable is that every challenge is an opportunity of growth. That That's the companionship of the Qur'an. When the Qur'an is your companion, you, you, you learn that uh, it, if you are not given the opportunity to overcome a test, then you will also not be given the opportunity to grow. You know, if people become stunted in growth, the, 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 either when people try to organize their lives in a way that say, I don't want to be tested, think of think of how every human development goes or how human de human development takes on a challenge right and you grow by overcoming the challenge if you organize your life in order to neutralize challenges there is no growth now of course you might the the fear of challenges might be on often is because of a weakness in faith is that you feel that a challenge instead of making you grow it will make you fall apart and so you say well you know because i don't want to fall apart so god please don't challenge me it, the When Allah presents you with a test, you know, we often say, we, we, we often think at the time that a test is, Allah, why did you put us through this pain? But if you, if 
you are looking back retrospectively and reflecting upon the tests that you in fact endured, you will find that every test presented you was an opportunity to grow. The, the, the key is that you don't fall apart. And the key is that you don't organize your life so that you neutralize the possibility of challenges so you don't grow. Put it, I mean, think again. And this is so, it sometimes it's so, it's like uh, every people who climb, you know, a new mountaintop, they, they actively put themselves confronted with the, with the challenge of having to reach a new height because of the promise of growth. When we start thinking of challenges as somehow Allah punishing us or as, as Allah disliking us or as Allah, you know, somehow, you know, persecuting us, that's when we deny ourselves the opportunity to grow. Look at every, I mean, sure, sometimes, look at the, the every, the, the whole dynamic between the Quran and the lives of the Prophet and the disciples of the Prophet. These were not easy challenges. And, you know, everything from, uh, you know, a caravan if, uh, 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 arriving while they're praying Jum'ah and people, you know, rushing to, 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 to grab stuff during a, a, a time of, in which, you know, if you don't rush and buy stuff, you know, the product might be gone, which we've talked about, to uh, every single the mechanics of every single battle they fought, and sometimes, and the worst, the, the toughest challenges are the challenges that present themselves in the guise of a blessing, like Fath Mecca, like the conquering of Mecca. You know, here the test is the test of abundance. These are actually much harder. And some of my, you know, some of the the the, the older folks, the, the the older generation, would would part of their dua is uh, is to ask Allah protection from the, the fitna of abundance, not the fitna of deprivation or most, more than the fitna of deprivation, which is a very fascinating perspective. And, you know, I would hear my grandmother doing that dua, and considering that my grandmother was, was already blind, and her husband had, had passed away, and I would always like say, well, Allah has taken your eyesight. I mean, what fitna of abundance are you worried about? 
But when I think back now, yeah, I completely understand what she, um, why she made that that dua. The 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 fitna of weathering away hardship was far easier than the fitna of getting everything she wants. So true. Okay, it's nine thirty-six. I think maybe we have time yeah. for one more question. Or? Okay, fine. Oh, do you <laughs> okay. Short. This is a. This, I think this is a short one. So this is actually from Brian. Thank you. In re, this is for Sur Telba. In relation to verse one twelve, the word sa'e has two meanings. One is fasting, and the other is traveling in search of what is true. What is the relationship between these two acts? Let me. Uh, I want to. Word what? Where where is it? Oh. Oh. Um, okay, let's look at Okay, so first This is in in the in the description of uh, in the description of the the nature of those who are pious, التائبون العابدون الحامدون السائحون. So here, the السائحون. Wait. So this is in one twelve, and where else? Oh, oh, uh, oh, I, I see what you're saying. Oh, yeah, I thought that you were... Uh, 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 so, yeah. The, what Brian is referring to is the the word siyaha, that, or the, it, it... That word itself has a dual meaning. Sometimes it can refer to, and sometimes you'll find it uh, translated as those who fast. And the, the, but at the same time, it means um, those who strive in the path of goodness or the path of God. And the original here is siyaha or sa'ah as the striver. A psalm was described as a form of siyaha because of the mechanics of psalm. So not every Siyaha is psalm, but every psalm is siyaha. So every sa'im is a sa'ah, but not every sa'ah is a sa'im. So talib al-ilm, someone who seeks knowledge, is to be described as a sa'ah, as well as, and there is actually, the, the way this comes up, is uh, 
those who objected to the description that every sa'im is a sa'ih by saying only those, every sa'im bi'usul siyam every every person who fasts according to the proper rules of fasting would be a sa'ih because if you are a sa'im but all you get from your siyam is hunger and thirst. Are you a sa'ih? Are you a seeker? And then the, the answer, the, their argue is no. You are potentially a seeker. Only if you understand or you incorporate or you absorb your hunger and thirst correctly as a pursuit of the divine. So that, that's what Brian was referring to. Brian never asks uh, simple questions. <laughs> so, you know, don't, don't get that. We don't uh, like simple questions. We like zingers. Uh, thank you, Brian. <laughs> so thank you so much, everybody, for another amazing session. We were so blessed to have two surahs that are, like, immediately transformative. The idea of the promise of light when d the darkness settles and then the hardship and the ease of Allah being with you. It's just, it, it's so, it's so comforting, as you said. Um, and to hear you, you know, present that as, you know, the alternative to something much more um, limited and, and of this earth is liberating at so many levels. So thank you so much. Um, I'm excited to see what we do next week, whether we start with uh, Surah Amada or if we continue with a couple more or, or one more short surah, or we'll see what we'll to do. See. So um, stay tuned. But have a wonderful week, everyone. Um, thank you for being with us, and inshallah, we will see you next week. Assalamu alaikum.